Uh, beginning to read then with verse 22 in this eighth chapter of 1 Kings. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on the earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you and with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand, as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you have promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord, my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place in which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. And when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave them, gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and confess, and, they, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear them in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. When there is a famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows that the plague, uh, when, knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and uh, give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, 
that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand that your, and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward the temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against your enemy wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they, take, and, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land uh, of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you, toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you've chosen and the temple which I built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplications of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. May the Lord God bless this reading to our good understanding. We have here a prayer by a king, King David. I mean, I'm sorry, King Solomon, David's son. But we have this prayer by this, um, this civil officer of the land. And it's, it should raise questions in your mind immediately when you see this and you read this, questions like, why is, why is the king acting like a priest in this case, uh, sanctifying this temple which has just been built by him for, the, for Israel's use? It seems like there's a tremendous mixture here of, of, uh, of uh, the civil and the sacred, or the civil and the ecclesiastical, church and state, if you will. And with our sensitivities today and uh, the, 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 the sensitivities that we have in terms of what is right and wrong for the state to do, what the church to do, this illustration really crashes in upon it. 
And um, uh, I wanted to just make a few comments before we get to the notes and the sermon here, just about the the um, the odd configuration of this taking place. Now, based upon mo a modern view of politics, a modern view of what is proper for the state, what is proper for the church, does this not seem all mixed up? And yet, um, how can God signify that Solomon was this great king if he's doing something really wrong? Is this, was this wrong of Solomon, the king, to pray in this place? Well, he wasn't, he wasn't taking the place of the priests and offering offerings like King Saul did where God censored that. Those, that was something that God gave to the priests himself. So we know that that was wrong. But uh, prayer is something we can all do. And we can all, we can all pray in, in every circumstance of our lives. And so here was the king who had been uh, granted the right to build this building. God had spoken to King David, his father before him, authorized this project. Uh, it, this was not a project that the priests did per se. They helped in it, but this was a project that the whole people gave themselves over to. It was done with a certain amount of taxation from the civil part of the state. And uh, so this temple was built. And yet uh, it seems here that there's no impropriety. There's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything right. If Solomon is our good example in this case for the way a civil ruler might act, then we see that it's a blessing if such rulers lift up prayers for their people. And um, uh, we see that we still do that in America during inaugurations and that sort of thing. New Congresses, there are prayers that are uttered. Of course, now nowadays with our, with our great... Um, drift into polytheism instead of monotheism with our great drift into polytheism we think that it's a good thing to bring pe different people of faiths or people of different faiths together to pray their prayers and of course this flies right in the face of this because this would be wrong this, there's only one true God so why, why, why bring in the most important civil ceremonies of your land why bring false faiths to bear upon the land and ask blessings of gods that are not there? Uh, the, the Psalms and the prophets mock this sort of thing. Do, do, your, do your idols hear? Do, they, do your idols who have eyes, do they really see? The prophets would ask, of course not. It's only Jehovah God who sees. There's only one true God. And so Solomon, the king at this point, prays and sanctifies this new temple that the priests will take over, that they will, uh, that they will proceed with. He sanctifies that with this, with this prayer uh, over the temple. And so it's a, it's a wonderful example to us, and it just breaks down so many of the false uh, myths and the false thoughts that we have today about separation of church and state. Now, see, uh, Solomon doesn't pretend to be a priest. There's, there still is a separation of church and state here to some degree, but it's along the lines that God has drawn, and that makes it all right or all wrong. And so Solomon, as the king, uh, realizes how important religion is and faith is for Israel, 
And the temple will have a role to play in that. And so in order to bless the temple and to bless Israel, he offers up this prayer as he, uh, as he goes to solemnize and uh, sanctify the temple that is before him. Now, having said this, then we get to these lessons that this text brings us. And they, there are a lot of theological lessons, deeply theological lessons that are spring from this text that will do us well to consider. The first one is that the temple that is here, the temple over which Solomon prays, this temple is a means of grace. Now, when, you, when, we, when we use the phrase means of grace, uh, you can think of the word means as meaning an instrument or even a tool. So a means of grace, there are various means of grace that we have, prayer, Bible reading, public church services, prayer, all of these kinds of things, they are all tools given to us by God to help us in our lives. Now, we often don't think about this in our lives. We often don't think, we, we, we tend to separate theology from the more practical parts of our life. When, when it comes to tools or instruments, we know how much need we have of them. Just this past week, we were cooking Thanksgiving dinners, and we used all kinds of tools for that. We had baking pans, we had ovens, we had measuring cups and measuring sticks, and uh, uh, various implements like this by which we could make our meal. These were all tools. You cannot, you cannot, in every human enterprise, there are tools or instruments that help us to do what we want to do. We've often used the illustration of the tire iron or the, the, the pump for your tire. If your tire goes flat, you better have some specific tools for these things or you're going to just lie beside the road, not going anywhere when you get a flat tire. We all need tools. And so based upon that, the Lord has given us in terms of the enter the spiritual enterprise of faith, God has given us different tools by which we can accomplish the things like we would do making a Thanksgiving meal. And uh, if we're his, uh, his people, ancient Israel, or Old Testament Israel, one of the great tools that he gave them was this temple area. Uh, now, what this first point is, that the temple it was a, a tool or a means of grace. It wasn't grace itself. Who was, who was the real source of grace? Was it not the Lord? That really gets into the Psalm part two, uh, uh, or part, part three, part C in the outline here. That is that, that the Lord is ultimately the power behind all of this that takes place. But the, the problem is that today, and um, in religion, uh, people tend to confuse the tools with the God of the tools. Uh, they tend to impute more and more power, more and more significance to the tools and, uh, and throw off the Lord. Now, the Lord wants us to use the tools. The Lord wants us to see the significance of the tools. The Lord wanted the Old Testament people to see the significance of the temple. But he didn't want the temple to be confused with him. It, what, what, what is the root of Roman Catholic theology other than this confusion? 
between the means of grace and the God of the grace. Their view was so twisted in this regard that they, that they taught that you didn't even have to really understand your faith. All you had to do was to come into the building, eat the mass, give your money, leave the building, and you would be blessed because the church was the blessing. Now, we know that the church is uh, the great, like the temple, the church is the a great means of grace. It's the foolish man that cuts himself off from the church, cuts himself off from the means of grace, cuts himself off from the tools that God has given us, and then thinks he's going to be sanctified. Uh, what, what, kind of a, what kind of a child would you have if you told your child, now these are the tools to do this, A, B, C, and D, and the child said, well, yeah, Dad said this, these were the tools, but I don't care about that. I'm going to do it anyway. So he brought one set of tools to a, a, a task that called for other tools, and he ended up using screwdrivers on jewelry and that kind of thing. He just defacing them, scratching them, ruining them, because he just insisted on his own tools. Well, it's the same thing with the Church of Christ. And um, the, the, the church is a great means of grace, but we shouldn't confuse it with the Lord. The Lord is the one who sent his only begotten son into the world to save us from our sin. The church is not the one who does this. The church is the tool, but you can't confuse the tool with the thing itself. And that's one, one very basic problem that we have had in Christianity. That's one of the problems that Protestantism sought to cure by always pointing to the, the, uh, the difference between the tools and the Lord of the tools. So here, Solomon prays over the temple, uh, but he he prays, he, when he, as he prays over it, he, he makes the distinction between um, the thing itself and uh, the Lord. In verse 50, uh, I'm sorry, in verse, um, uh, in verse, um, verse 27, <clears throat> he asks, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Now, he's just made this temple, and he's asking God to dwell there. He's asking God to be, to identify with this new temple and to bless the people through it, to use it as his tool. But he asks the theological question, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. And throughout this prayer, he, he prays continually, O oh God, uh, when we pray in this temple, would you who are really in heaven hear our prayers? It's, it's a refrain that is repeated again and again and again through the prayer. So uh, he, he makes this distinction between the, the God who is beyond space and time, a God who could never be contained by a building here upon this earth, and the building, the God of the tool and the tool itself. Yet even in Protestantism, we've had this confusion. We sometimes we build these great cathedrals. How many people that are wed to uh, Anglicanism and, Episcopi and Episcopacy? How many people that are wed to these things have a kind of superstitious view of the buildings, the, the great spires, and these kinds of things? And so, in the Sunday school, in the church history lesson this morning, following church, we're going to be learning about how. 
uh, about the beginning of Puritanism. And one of the one of the reasons that Puritanism began was because people made this confusion, and they they confused the the greatness of the church of that day with the greatness of God, and they 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 didn't respect the simple faith where people as individuals go to the Lord and pray, like we might. All of us can pray. Our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Um, God is the God who stands behind the tools, and God is the God who is the most important part. God is the grace, uh, not the tools that he gives us. The second thing is here that uh, it has to do with prayer itself, because Solomon prays, and he wants us to know uh, that prayer is a means of grace. So that's one of the great means of grace. We would say, Probably the two greatest means of grace that God gives us are the written word of God and prayer. Now, all the means of grace are important. And even to say that these two are most important is to err in some ways, to, to, to uh, misshape the discussion in some ways. And yet, these are the two most general, and uh, these are the two that we can carry with us wherever we go. We don't need to be associated with them, some big building or some impressive denomination to be to be um, bereft of God. No, God can go wherever we go. If we have his word, if we can sing his psalms, we are rich people. And if we have prayer, like Solomon prayed here, then prayer is a great and significant thing. You know, you notice here, the, the temple was built, but, but uh, Solomon... Uh, uses this tool of prayer to bless the temple. So which is more powerful? Which is more significant? Which is more efficacious, prayer or the temple? If prayer is used to bless the temple, then which is more powerful? Are you without, are you empty? Are you without the power that God has given us to affect great changes in our lives? You see what a blessing it is that God has given us this prayer that we have today, that our Lord Jesus taught us about. Our Lord Jesus taught us not to pray as if prayer was some sort of a magic, as if the incantation of our words was the secret to prayer. No, he simply said, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Pray in these simple ways, but address your prayer to the Lord who is there in the heavens, just as Solomon did here. Solomon said, oh, Lord, when we go out, when we have famine, when we go out, when we lose wars, when we forget you and we sin, and we turn back, hear, oh, Lord, in the heavens where you are. And so, you see, this is such good theology of prayer. It helps us to separate the the wheat from the chaff and not confuse these things, as has been done so often in church history. And so... A prayer is another means of grace. It's another tool. It's a great tool. It's something upon which we ought to dedicate ourselves. We ought to get better at prayer. And I'll testify to this as a as a young man. Uh, the first time that I led in prayer before a service, I was very very self conscious. I I thought, Dick, you are the worst prayer in this world. And uh, yet I went. I did it, and I started to do it. And, and uh, today, um, you know, you probably all think that I'm just the most expert in prayer 
that you know one of the great experts in your presence, and yet I still feel impoverished myself. Do I pray if I if I really believe in the power of prayer? Do I pray like that? Do uh, am I am I so constant in my prayer that? I show by that constancy the efficacy with which I think prayer is clothed? Unhappily, no. I'm constantly, you know, in the medieval church, to motivate themselves properly, they would have these little hand whips, these little flagellation devices. And in movies, you'll sometimes see them using these on their back to whip themselves, to remind themselves of this or that. And so I think most of us... um, whip ourselves over prayer because we realize that no matter how wonderful we are in our prayer, um, we, we could be better. And yet, having said that, I, I feel like I get more out of public prayer in this fellowship than uh, in almost any other prayer because I feel like this is the special place where God's present and where God blesses us with his presence. And so as we lift up prayer for each other, as we pray about things like that, I feel a special anointing by God um, in, in my own heart for these things. And that's what this, we see with Solomon here on this day. The temple was built. He knew that that was a means of grace, but he uses this other means of grace that God gave to everybody, Adam and Eve, and everybody after that. He uses this other means of grace, prayer, as a blessing to bless this temple and of course, the, the the secret of the temple was that it was something visible. It would remind people that God had set, come and dwelt there with His Holy Spirit. Remember, just a chapter back, in uh, in chapter uh, well, in, 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 or, I mean earlier in this chapter, verse ten, it said, "And it came to pass." This is at the end of the temple being built. That it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God pinned his presence, as it were, upon this house as a token, as a sign that he existed. He existed in the heavens. The prayer of Solomon shows that they knew that God existed in the heavens, that his sublime celestial being was much greater than the things of this earth. It was totally different than the creation. But at the same time, God invested himself in one place at that time as an advertisement to the world that they might know something about theological truth. And he called them to come and to worship there. And we know that the great, the great secret of the temple was the sacrificial system that went on day and night that was represented by the the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. It was like Christ dwelt there right in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark represents our Lord Jesus Christ. So right in the middle of the temple was this great sacrificial sign that despite the law of God, which which was in the Ark, God was promising covenant blessings. God was promising righteousness. God was promising the forgiveness of sins if the people would come and invest themselves in this faith that God had given unto Moses. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing, a, a total blessing.
Now, part C of the outline here is that God, the triune God, is the power here, not the temple or the church. And we've been talking about that uh, already uh, throughout this, but we, we, it's good to make a separate point of it and isolate it and talk about it and think about it. Um, in the 27th to the 30th verse, that's where he says, but will God dwell upon the earth? Uh, and verse 28, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying over you today that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day. Now, where's the real power, you see? The power is in the Lord. The, the key is to get God to, to open his eyes and to, to look on the people who are coming to the temple, imploring him through their prayer for certain blessings. So the real power is in the Lord. And this, again, this there are certain threads that just weave their way all through this prayer. And uh, this is one of them, that God is the power uh, not the temple or the church, that, they, that, they, that the Lord was calling them to seek his face through this tool of grace, this tool or this means of grace. Now, next week, we're going to be having the Lord's Supper here. Same thing. Same thing. It's a means of grace. God has promised to bless us through it if we come to him in faith. So this week, we're going to pray that this meal would be efficacious to us, that it would be powerful to us. I've already prayed that in the, in the joint prayer that we prayed earlier in the service. Bless us, O Lord, next week. Because we realize that the power of the Lord is the key to our lives. And whether it comes to the nation, whether it comes to the church, church or state, God is still the power. Psalm 127, except the Lord build the house, they who labor labor in vain. Where in the world do we get the crazy notion today that if we can separate ourselves from God, that we will be power, more powerful? Do we make ourselves more powerful electronically if we break all the outlets in our home so that we can't plug anything into the walls? Is that the way to really use electricity? Separation of life from the plug. Of course not. It's idiotic. It's foolish. We need to plug ourselves in. And uh, it would be a wonderful thing today if our, if our officers or if our magistrates would offer more references to the Lord, if they would show in a more intense and intimate way that they knew where the power was. And they asked God for the power. It's one of the great anomalies of, uh, for having to do with conservatives having to do with Mr. Trump. If I was Mr. Trump, I would be asking myself the question, how, how in the world, why, Lord, did you bring that epidemic uh, to, our, our to our house at the very time that we were doing so magnificently in terms of business and economy? Why, why, why? Uh, God did not do that during... Mr. O, uh, Mr. Biden's administration, he's done other things. <laughs> there are other failures and things that have happened during his. But uh, you see, Mr. Trump is one of the few presidents who has mentioned anything about the Lord at all. So we rejoice in that. But whatever specificity he has used, he could be more specific. He has not really um, magnified 
the work of the Son. He's made vague references to God, the God of the Bible, God of American history. Now, as vague as they are, that's still a blessing. But I would like to hear our presidents today, our, our judges, I would like to hear them in their declarations pray. Would, not, would it not be a blessing to hear the name of Christ upon their lips. Would that not sanctify our nation? Who might know what the Holy Spirit of the living God would do if we would become more obviously Christian, more obviously biblical? It's not a blessing to be, to be separate from this God. It's a blessing to invest ourselves in him because that's where the true power was. Now the last point here uh, speaks to the another purpose of the temple. And I, I, I argue here in point D, the purpose of the temple was one, to raise up the name of the Lord in a visible way, you see, and then two, to redeem the creation and the elect. And I've given you some verses there to, to look upon. Verse 43b is just one of the verses in this, in this portion that talks about the name of the Lord. Uh, verse 43, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you. That, or the, the purpose is that the peoples of the earth might know your name and fear you. Throughout this prayer, uh, Solomon is praying that the name of, they're, they're doing this, he says, for the name of the Lord. Here he, here he prays, in, uh, regarding the foreigner. Now, uh, I love this. This uh, You might think that it was kind of a throwaway scripture, but verse 41 introduces this section. And Solomon prayed, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, and listen to this, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. So he recognizes that there's an efficacy with Jehovah God that's different than all the other gods of the world. And so the foreigners come. Now, he hasn't, he hasn't wandered in like so many of the um, immigrants to America because he thinks he can get a good job. That was probably true, too. But he's, he, he's immigrating to Israel because he recognizes the power and the efficacy of the name of the Lord. So he's coming He's, he's, the, the gospel has brought him to Israel. And it's a wonderful thing. And uh, so this is what Solomon's praying that the name of the Lord in verse 43, that, that all the peoples of the earth might know your name. And we prayed, <clears throat> um, we prayed, we sang in Psalm 138 this morning, with all my heart, my thanks I bring uh, before the gods thy praises sing, I'll worship in thy holy place and praise thy name for truth and grace. For thou above thy name adored has magnified thy faithful word. The day I called, thy help appeared. With inward strength, my soul was cheered. All kings of earth, verse 3, all kings of earth shall thanks accord when they have heard thy words, O Lord, when they know the name of the Lord. See the prayer that Solomon was praying here. Jehovah's ways, they'll celebrate the glory of the Lord is great. What are we here for in this world other than to glorify the Lord, to make his name more visible? The very first catechism question, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so Solomon prays here. 
uh, that when the stranger comes to the earth, he prays uh, that when he comes, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. You see, the purpose, one of the purposes of the temple was the evangelism of the world, the bringing of all men to faith, uh, the bringing, especially the elect, obviously, but then it's, it's, it's even beyond the elect. It's the, whole, it's the creation. There, there was what God created the earth. It was a good thing. He said it was all good. But then it became renegade through Adam and Eve's uh, poor administration. And the whole, the whole creation fell into sin through Adam and Eve's administration. Now, redemption, the redemption of the Old Testament and the New Testament is about the reversal of this. You might think, well, Cano, you're being secular or you're, you're off kilter here. What about John Bunyan, Paradise Lost? What was the second book you wrote? Paradise Regained. These are old ideas. This is not canonical. This is Christianity with a nice, a nice consonantal uh, uh, sound with a canonical and Christianity there woven into the fabric of my exhortation. And so we see this being espoused by King Solomon here, the great king as he prays for the foreigners who would be attracted. How were these foreigners attracted? Was it not by the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit that filled the temple? Did the Holy Spirit not begin to bring people in? Uh, and many of them offering gifts to Solomon. Solomon's reign became so popular and it seemed so blessed. Why did it appear that way? Because God's Spirit gave that sense to people all around Israel. They, instead of being envious of Israel or jealous or angry, the Spirit of God moved upon them, and they, they found joy in King Solomon's reign. And so they wanted to parlay and make covenants with Israel uh, uh, to, that they might be in some way associated with the success of Solomon's kingdom. We have almost totally lost a sense of this in the evangelical church today. We don't think it's worthy of prayer. We don't think it's possible upon this earth. We're, 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 there are more Christians that are waiting for the, the rapture, so-called, than they are waiting for what happened here in Solomon's reign. Uh, we would say to the dispensationalists, dispensationalists, if it's so impossible, then how did it happen in the Old Testament with the kings, David and Solomon? This shows that it's possible upon the earth. There's just a need for grace, a need for prayer, a need for a devotion of God's people and a dedication to these prayers. That the promises of Psalm 67, 22 at the end, Psalm 110, that these prayers would come to pass. And so uh, Solomon prays that way. The temple was a very important means of grace that God brought to ancient Israel by way of winning the whole world to Christ. And so he had his, uh, the, the son of David, Solomon, he had the son of David uh, pray for this. The sermon title was Sol Solomon's son prays for temple. We cannot forget that, that Solomon was the son of David, even as was the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great, the greatest uh, tool, the greatest means of grace possible. For by his life and death, he worked out salvation in reality our father and our god we pray 
that we might use this memory of the temple as a great goad to us for the winning of the world to Christ. We pray that we might have eyes upon the foreigners of our day. We know that many foreigners have come to America, not so much for our faith, but for our fortune. But we pray that having come, from the, for, having come for the fortune, that they might be led to the faith. So we pray that our faith might burn brighter and hotter and warmer and more vibrantly than ever before. And we pray that America might again be a city set upon a hill, and that other nations like Scotland that once took upon thy, took of thy name in the same way, that the nations of the world, as it says in Psalm 138, that the kings shall thanks accord when they have heard thy words, O Lord. Jehovah's ways, they'll celebrate the glory of the Lord is great. Oh God, bless us with this prayer. Bless us with memories of the temple. Bless us with a correct understanding of the means of grace. And bless us with new life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.